an aged desolation. She sits by old Shannon's flowing, a mother of many children, of children exiled and dead, in her home with bent head, homeless. Clasping her knees, she sits, keening, keening. Sometimes she lifts her head, with blue eyes tearless, and gazes athwart the reek of night upon things long past, upon things to come. Welcome back to A Pair of Banshees, and this is episode five. It took us five episodes to do our our Banshees, and I think it's a, I'm really, you know, five episodes in, it's kind of like a nice number to do the Banshee on. You know, it's happy. I think so. Yeah, five, it's a whole hand. It's a whole five, you know, it's, it's a good five fingers. A good five fingers, and I don't know, I think we kind of just felt like we needed to warm up to her. We had to like yeah, yeah, I agree. ball rolling before we just jumped straight into just talking about the Banshee herself. Yeah, the Banshee and Death Omens is what we are going to look at today. And it's a sinister episode. It's a sinister episode, but an interesting episode. Yeah. I know people don't like to talk about death. If, uh, if anyone at this point is feeling, yeah, death, not for me, by all means... You know, maybe this isn't the episode for you, but we're just kind of going to... Death and Irish folklore are massively intertwined. So it is important, I suppose, to to, to enlighten people on this. We've always had things like death omens and creatures that are bringers of it or forewarners of it. So that little extract you heard at the beginning um, was by Barbara Flynn. And Barbara is a UCD folklorist and she very kindly um, had a chat with me during the afternoon and we talked about the Banshee and we talked about the social importance of her figure and different legends and different myths and her purpose in society and and how you recognise her and uh, it's a it's a lovely interview. She's very she was brilliant to have to sit down and have a chat and um, thank you so much, Barbara. We hope you enjoy it. We'll play that for you a little bit later on in the episode. We kind of we're going to talk about the Banshee for and Death Omens for just a starter to warm you up into it. Yeah, and to give you give you the lowdown, give up, give you the information, and then we'll allow you to listen to the rest of the interview then. And yeah, so thank you, Barbara. And we actually had we both had her as the as a lecturer when we yeah. did folklore and UCD. So. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Barbara, best lecturer in UCD folklore. Woo! <laughs> we, we love the folklore department in UCD. Um, they're doing fantastic work. And it was such... We mentioned this in a previous episode that it was such a such a privilege as a, a folklore nerd yeah. to yeah. to see where folklore is 
stored and you know and um just seeing other people who actually you know spend their life researching and collecting and keeping this stuff and passing on to others is just really it's really lovely and it's a tiny little folklore department um the the archives but they're so lovely i mean remember just listening to the you know the wax cylinders of recordings of storytellers it was just so amazing Amazing. So, yeah, shout out to our lovely little folklore archives in UCD. Thank you for your work. Um, before we go into our episode, we have to do the mandatory plugging of the social medias. Of course, because who are we on if we don't do that? Right. So, yeah, you can uh, you can find us on all the social medias, as always. Please do. Please say hi. Uh, come say boo on Instagram, on Facebook, where we have a group that you can join to share stories. Uh, we're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. And you can listen to us on basically everything. Spotify, Anchor, iTunes, soon youtube i'm in the process of making that happen <laughs> please bear with <laughs> um basically all the all the platforms where you can listen to stuff you can listen to us you can also send in any stories that you want to kind of share with us um at pair at gmail.com because we want to hear your stories and if you're if you if you like we're quite happy to read them out on the episodes and share your stories to a wider community and we can put your name to it or we can do it anonymously or we don't have to do it but the option is there absolutely so please share your stories we've already had one which we're actually going to share in this episode yeah so we're very excited um and we were so like we were just smiling like noobs when we found out we had our first uh <laughs> submission yeah. in the email we were like yay people are listening and want to share yeah uh, it's so nice um so please do and we're having lovely responses on the social medias this is as well where people are sending in their fairy trees so don't forget we're doing the oh hashtag fairy tree challenge if you see any fairy trees in your local area or surrounding area on your 5k walk of course um <laughs> please send us in photos and you can start joining us on this uh you know non-existent as of yet trend you know hashtag fairy tree challenge but perhaps with time it can be a thing yeah. <laughs> and we are doing it because we want to we want to expose that this practice is still happening because so many people don't think oh folklore that's an old wives tale that's an old thing in the past no this is still happening and here's a little fact for you that i learned uh, jenny was that yeah. if a farmer has a a piece of land that's covered by woodland or by trees they don't get paid for that so okay. to actually keep uh, a fairy tree on your land means you lose money for the that land that's been taken up by a tree so it's actually it doesn't work in favor to the farmer to have that Absolutely tree on not. Land, but they keep it there because of the tradition of uh, keeping a fairy tree on your land for fear of bad luck if you remove it so we're trying to tell people this is still happening in today's world so if you do see them do send them in to us we're trying to you know representation of fairy trees that's what it is basically representation is very important <laughs> exactly. yeah. and yeah and with this whole podcast and everything that we're trying to do I mean we just want to have a little part in preserving folklore preserving your stories and experiences so if we can do that in this kind of way please allow us and join us in doing so so yeah and with that i guess we'll just jump right into the episode won't we sarah we will i think it's a good so, place to start 
we're talking about the Banshee, the most, probably, I think, the most famous Irish creature. Her and the Leprechaun, I'd say, are equal in people's knowledge. Yeah. What they know about folklore. Yeah, I'd say so. Or even if it's like, if you think of any kind of... Leprechaun wouldn't be necessarily, I think, an ominous or sinister creature. No, yeah. Think of the kind of, yeah, any kind of dark folklore or any kind of dark fairy. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll get into that. But, you know, everyone, I think, without knowing anything about folklore, knows the Banshee. And I think she's had a very hard time. I think how she's represented, particularly a lot in, like, there's a few movies and stuff where the Banshee is depicted as this, you know, you see her. Evil creature. Exactly. You see her, she's going to kill you, you know? And she's this wicked hag, this evil creature. And we're here today to kind of say, well, actually, no. Actually, no, she's really not. Yeah, see, again, uh, the world screwing over female. As, yeah, a lot of female creatures, um, she's, yeah, she's feared. She's this terrifying, screaming hag. (laughs) Um, But we want to kind of delve into the history of her and stories of her and just kind of, yeah, discuss and dissect that a little bit, that she's not just this one-dimensional, terrifying old hag. But first of all, you're probably like... Banshee, yeah, that's grand. I've heard of that. But, like, what what actually is a Banshee, you know? (laughs) So what's a Banshee? So your Banshee is, basically, she's a death omen. She is very often depicted as uh, an old woman, very often seen combing her hair, and she's crying. She's crying because somebody that, who hears her or sees her, knows will die. She can also be depicted as... A young woman, quite beautiful, but it's more often than than not the hag. You know, very often women are depicted as that kind of... It's either one extreme or the other, isn't it? You're either ugly and decrepit or absolutely stunning. What about, like, what's the representation for ordinary people? You know, just like you're one of the male, you know, average person. (laughs) Just your regular Joe, yeah? Just your regular... Joshi. Am I not good enough to be a banshee? Like, you know. <laughs> Apparently not, Sarah. I'm sorry. Um, but at least, you know, I might not be stunning, but at least I'm not a hag. There's that. I think I'm closer to a, to a screaming hag, really, than, than anything, really. <laughs> yeah. So the banshee is said to cry for specific families. These families, um, she's a very old creature, so these families were known as the Gaelic nobility. Mm-hmm. She cries for the O'Neills, the O'Briens, the O'Connors, the O'Gradys. And then just to break the trend altogether, the Kavanaghs. Yeah, no O's. But she also can follow any family that has the O in front of it or the Mac in front of it. The Mac, just, yeah. I was thinking about afterwards. McKenna. Yeah. Olenic. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the two. I've got the O, you've got the Mac. Both got our own banshees. Woo! Isn't that mad? I mean, okay, and my my surname is Ukrainian. It's Olenic, but as I told Sarah, one time we got a letter to the house, and we were on the name. It said O apostrophe Lenic, and I told my mom, I was like, "Well, that's it. That's it. We're officially Irish now. We've yeah. got the O apostrophe. We're in." You're welcome. So, do you know what? Like maybe maybe that's how the band she sees us as well. She's like, you've been here for 18 years. You're O apostrophe Lennox now. That's it. That's that is it. And like 
to have a banshee associated with your family was considered a good thing. You know, people wanted to have a banshee with Honourable or Honourable. Yeah, because she was this person that cried for you when you were supposed to die. She was warning your family. She was giving you time. And to have one associated with your family, I mean, I suppose as well, it showed like your true Gaelicness. So there you go, Jenny. We might have our own personalized banshees. You know, and we'll share little stories with you towards the end of the episode as well. So maybe. Maybe. The origin of the banshee goes right back into very early Irish uh, mythology, but mm. depicted completely differently. When, as you'll hear in the interview with Barbara, um, Barbara talks about this a lot that the banshee creature sort of morphed from very ancient goddess figures, um, and she has old roots in traditional Irish lore. So, Barbara speaks of this creature as something very very ancient that sort of morphed with time yes so the the goddess she was called after is bow and bow was a war goddess and she used to appear in the form of a scald crow and would warn um warriors of their death and would cr- and would call for their when they were about to die a scald mm-hmm. crow i did a bit of research is the crow not a scaldy was- crow yeah no, not a scaldy crow. A scald crow is a specific type of crow, Jenny. And it uh, it has grey and black feathers. You sometimes see them. So, like, their necks are grey. Um, in the south of Ireland, so in Munster, the banshee was often called a bow. Okay. And, and that's the goddess's name. So, there is that tie between them. And then, yeah, over time, she changed her image of... And I think that kind of reflects maybe also how women were treated over time. You know, that once they were revered, so high status and powerful goddess-like. And then she became the hag. And what does that say about how the value of women changed? You know, I, I think that says a lot there. Well, that's how I can't help obviously seeing it as well. As in like, yeah, she's, she's um, her station is lowered, her power is lowered her status, her um, respect. So mm. she's just this, she's not a goddess or an ancient, powerful creature. She is a scary old lady you see by the side of the road and you avoid it. Yeah. But many people will have heard of the fact that she's often known in as Banshee translate to fairy woman. But yeah. Patricia Lysett, who very much wrote the book on the Banshee, the Banshee. and how it's represented and we highly encourage you to read her work she said that it's a problematic translation because banshee she would often be said to mean otherworldly or um woman of the fairy mound or an otherworld forewarner of death yeah so the idea was the banshee is not maybe potentially not a fairy because she doesn't share the same qualities as a fairy. Fairies are sociable. You know, you see them in groups and they they have families and they have order in their societies, whereas a banshee is solitary. Fairies are mischievous. They can bring good or bad luck to humans. A banshee is a death omen. She's not playing around when she appears you know she's there yeah she's here for one purpose sort of thing yeah and it's not that she's she's not kind she's not harmful she's just this presence she is 
<laughs> she is, yeah. So, and I thought that was really interesting. You know, that she maybe yeah. is the fairy. What? The, where does she belong then in the world of races? Well, it's interesting. Maybe she's, I don't know, maybe there's a hierarchy, but maybe she isn't. She's just a different breed, you know. Uh, maybe she's above it all. Um, if she's not a fairy. But I mean, yeah, the kind of idea before we went into research for this episode, I had an idea that she she just known as part of the fairy family. Mm. But I don't I mean, I agree with that. It's sort of problematic and kind of maybe disrespectful to just assume she just ah, she's just a fairy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's its own presence in itself. And if especially if she does come from roots of of goddess roots, you know? Yeah. To then just be like, ah, it's just a little old fairy. It's very disrespectful to any kind of god or goddess to kind of do that. And then there's that whole argument of some people think the fairy people were the two of the Danon. And then when we spoke to Pat in episode two, Pat disagreed with that totally, saying he believes that the fairies and the two of the Danon were two different species of people. And his Mm -hmm. argument, of course, is that I've seen the fairies. I've talked to them. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's fine. That throws everything else out the window. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. I mean, there's that, yeah. When I went to research about ways that, or appearances of the Banshee, in the school's collection, which we talked about in the last episode as yeah. well, um, I found accounts of the Banshee being described as a young woman or a childlike creature with golden hair as well. So as they said she kind of might she has this kind of triad like the goddess you know she kind of she appears as a as a child uh sort of somewhere in the middle kind of beautiful woman or the extremely old hag you know and a lot of these accounts in the school's collection so children and teenagers asking uh about the banshee tradition to you know in their in their local towns or whatever or their family members they the stories that they collected i found a lot of accounts saying that she is small because she is like a fairy or she is a fairy creature, according to people's oral lore. That's why she appears and she's very small in size. She's only a couple feet because she's a fairy creature. Do you know what's interesting you say about how she appears as a child to like a young woman, to a hag? Mm -hmm. It's the fairy tale. Think about it. You know, the, the innocent child then matures into this beautiful young woman but the child has a path of either becoming the beautiful young woman or turning into the hag at the end. Mm-hmm. That's very much like, you know, the how women are depicted in fairy tales. You're either the yeah. innocent young child, the beautiful maiden, or the wicked or old witch. evil, wicked old witch, yeah, yeah. Whoa, my mind has just got psyched. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't know, but I think we're onto something there, Jenny. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But, like, that's how women are usually, you know, there's that kind of, um, there's the categories. Again, I think... The child, the beautiful woman, or the old hag, that's the, you know, it's that kind of the, the innocent virgin versus yes. the whore versus the wise old crone, you know? Yeah. Why yeah. can't you be anything? Why can't you be all three? Why can't you be anything outside of that, you know? Um, it's that whole thing. There you go. We need to write uh, something about that. <laughs> At something, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Something. We'll, we'll come back to that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's something in her other origin that might give us a little bit of clue into what she really is. So it is said that the Banshee also comes from keening women. 
Keening women were women who were brought into funerals. They were dressed in dark black clothes. They were often kind of careless with their life, very um, bohemian, and would walk barefoot a lot of the time. They were women that were brought into funerals to cry over the body of the deceased person. And they would wail and they would sing and they would lament. And it was this cathartic release and purging of emotions. And this was a practice that was had for a very long time. And it only really died out in in the 1950s. There are like the final few records of it happening on the islands. But like this was something that expanded for eons. This was a really ancient practice. And I think it was a really lovely way that people dealt with death, as we said in the beginning, because it was an acknowledgement of this is an emotional time. And I, this was a, this was a purge. To purge myself of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's beautiful because a lot of other cultures do this. They do it in the Philippines, um, in Mexican culture. You know, it's, as I mentioned to Sarah, my favorite scene in the Lord of the Rings, I think it's Keening where Eowyn sings that beautiful old English I think it's a keening song to her brother who dies uh, when Theodred dies. Um, if Lord of the Rings fans out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and like, it's just this beautiful kind of emotional, guttural, raw female voice. You know, just because we sing for all occasions and we sing because it's too emotional to speak. And you know, funerals and and rituals of all sort have always involved song, you know? So I just think it was a really beautiful thing because, yeah, death used to be, you know, communal. Um, It brought people together. It, like, it it just wasn't handled the way it is now, you know? No. So, yeah, they, they trace origins of the Banshee back to this kind of tradition of the traditional Irish keening woman who would sing these emotional raw mourning songs i guess for people yeah and angela burke um who is a scholar on it said that the lament was highly articulate traditions of women's poetry so these women were called the band queencha and they were queen they were egg queen you they were crying over the body it placed women's role in the funeral and in the death process very central it was a patriarchal society yeah, they became the primary focus and carers of the body and um, mourners, such important processes and that people followed and, you know, placed women on these statuses to be to follow them in this occasion where they mightn't. But we found a, a, a sample that we can show you of of what Keening would have sounded like. So we found these on the website keeningwake.com and it's an interview with Philida Anam Oira, this lady, was recorded by Maeve Gavin in Edinburgh in 2017. And she talks about hearing Keening as a child in Donegal in the 40s. And she says, I just remember every bit of it and I remember what it sounds like. And then she proceeds to demonstrate what she remembers hearing these women do. We have two little examples of it here. So hopefully you'll be able to hear it now. Hey, Mama! Hey, 
Okay, and the second extract we have is by the same lady singing it. Um, this is a more kind of melodic version of it. So, like, when you hear this, I think what strikes you, what struck me was the rawness of it and what that would have been like as someone who was grieving a family member to see these people coming into your house um, that would have been potentially searched for far and wide because such was the professionalism that that was required to be the role of a keener in the Mm -hmm. funeral process and to witness these women very much bearing their souls and vocalizing what you were internalizing basically and we don't do that anymore we have you know we've got beautiful songs sure and instruments but it's just it's not that same um that that lack of fear about being raw and being emotional you know um and there's something that's so beautiful and yeah like animalistic and pagan almost about it as well and it's just so beautiful i think and we're just yeah like as we said you think of funerals you think of people kind of fighting to keep tears in and look orderly and someone very you know discreetly dabbing their their tears with a handkerchief off their cheek you know um there's no I don't know there's shame in mourning there's shame in crying there's you know all that kind of stuff yeah which is a shame I think we shouldn't be like come on in death especially that's not a time for decorum and uh, feeling shameful about how you look and yeah. you know it, it should be a time people come together people openly mourn and be together to help people through it you know yeah there is I think a very much a perception in today's society of okay you take your three days to have your funeral process then maybe you take a week off work and then you have like you're a month sad and then you get over it when like and, and I think that's, you know, that really frustrates me of like how people in today's world, because time moves so fast. Now, maybe after all this quarantine and lockdown is over, our perception of death and life will be totally different. I but hope so. Before, before times, we'll call it, you know, people expected you to just move on with your life and to get back to work when not realizing that death and losing someone and that whole process, it takes so much out of you. It's, it will change you. It can change your life. It, it can take you years yeah. to get over something. It can take you years to realize someone has been lost as well. You know, grief is such a strange, powerful thing that, you know, it affects people in different ways. There's no expiration date on grief. And yeah, like to force, yeah, like this is such a common narrative in our society where you say like, oh it's been four years get over it like yeah you know or whatever and it's just it's disgusting it is disgusting and I think people need to I think that the idea of the keener it's such a shame that it did die out and it's beautiful I think it's amazing do you know why it died out why 
the bloody yes. church. Yeah, yes, it was your boy. He was back in business. <gasps> so not Catholicism, not Catholicism. So what happened was the the keening process. So you had women at the forefront who were acting as now this is a lovely word I found out a psychopomp. Mm. And a psychopomp, I had never heard of this, but I think it's a beautiful word, is someone who acts um, as a guide to bring the living person's soul into the other world. So, for for example, people will probably be familiar with um, Sharon on the River Styx, bringing yeah. you down into Hades' world. But the keening process was meant to guide people's souls into this other world. But who else is supposed to do that? The priest and the prayers around the priest. <sighs> So what would happen was the priest would come in and bless the body and then he would have to give way for this woman to come in and perform something that was very pagan and traditional and archaic and not in in agreement with the Catholic Church. And he, raw, yeah. Yeah, he would have to be second to a woman and to a pagan ritual and they did not like that that was not something they wanted so what they started to do was to shun the keening ritual to make people feel embarrassed for having this at um having this at your wake even the wake itself was considered uh because people used to you know drink and play games and do kind of big celebration even gather at a person's house and you would yeah you would yeah have a have a get together essentially yeah but like people basically yeah they started to shame this and um even in victorian times it was told if anyone traveling to ireland you were told oh go and see an irish funeral if you can because the women who performed the keening became essentially performing monkeys you know it became a a novelty and an attraction it wasn't being taken seriously anymore it was oh my God, you still have that? You know, it was embarrassment and it was it was shunned out of society, basically. That's such a shame. Isn't it? I think it's... That's horrendous. It makes me sad. Because I think the mystery, I think, I think the image of these women and the sounds and everything that would have been a part of it would have been so supernatural feeling. You would have felt these women would have almost being figures of another world like they were liminal themselves they themselves felt that they were balancing two worlds by their cries yeah. and gone that's that's it's it hurts it hurts my heart that things like this just disappear you can see how the idea of the banshee being a keening woman is absolutely authentic you know that can yeah because now i see I mean, knowing that, you could just imagine then, especially this woman who cries upon a death being shunned and pushed out of the norm of society and that was an integral part of the mourning process. Being pushed away, being shunned, um, you know, becomes this, yeah, like this creature that isn't welcome anymore, that's is supposed to is very related closely to death you know maybe they morphed there's a bit of reality with kind of myth and they morph into this creature that we know today as the banshee yeah even the way she dresses she dresses like a keening woman you know in rags cloaked dark clothing she's an old woman if when she is depicted like that barefoot mm-hmm. i mean like 
if you probably saw these women walking down the street, like obviously in modern day, you would think, my God, I'm looking at a banshee. But like <laughs> everything, everything about her, their, their role, how they looked, their function, it's a banshee. I, yeah, I see it. Yeah. The, how, how women have been pushed aside again is just another thing we'd like to, to, to wave a flag at. <laughs> Basically, can't wait for everybody to get sick of our feminist crap. But I, I think it's, va- it's valid because these It's were very women. valid. And yes, yes, I will make these things sexist if I can. <laughs> but women were absolutely pushed aside. They were taken out of the primary focus of the of the ritual of the funeral. And I think I think to to not acknowledge that yes, this was a this was a patriarchal thing that was done is I think you're a, a bit blind there. We would like to share with you some stories of the Banshee, both personal and both documented. Yeah, I have some um, tales that I have found thanks to the school's collection uh, from various counties, so it's pretty great, of the Banshee. So I have two stories here. I found, I was reading a bunch of these um, collections of tales and um, oral, yeah, I was going through this oral history anyway, that these um, children would have collected from people. And some of them didn't have names, unfortunately, but some I have some that do. Um, but the more I was reading about these local collections of the Banshee stories, I was coming across some that kept saying that she actually did speak sometimes. Like, it was a very brief bit of speech, but she did actually speak. Because as me and Sarah were talking before we started recording... She's never, she's a solitary creature that weeps, but she never speaks. Yeah, she wails. That's the band she, she wails. wails. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because these are very, they are very, um, the, the accounts that I did find where she did speak, it sounds very fairy tale you know, it sounds um, sort of made up, I guess, but this is oral history that was passed down in this town then, you know? Um, yeah. So it must come from somewhere. And another thing that I kept seeing was um, the like strength or violence of the Banshee, even though we don't want to portray her as exactly this just this sinister creature. But I was hearing these tales where, for example, in a story about a Banshee in the collections, uh, there's a story about two men who are returning from a visit when they saw a Banshee sitting on the wall combing her hair. She disappeared when they came near her, but she left her comb on the wall. One of the men took her comb, as they bloody do, and they really shouldn't. In the middle of the night, the banshee came to the window and asked the man for her comb. The man handed out the comb on a spade. The banshee, thinking the spade was the man's hand, broke it in two. And there were a few tales like that where um, someone throws it out the window. And this is the next story I have from... Joe McCann from Coolbock, County Sligo. Again, there was a man, he saw a banshee, she dropped her comb, and he picked it up and went home with it. And the night he he had gotten into bed with his wife, and she woke him up saying that she thinks the cat is at the window trying to get in. The man went to the window, and on looking out, he saw that it was the banshee shouting for her comb. So he got it and threw it out to her. Ha, says the banshee. "'Twas all your luck you did not put your hand out. 
So that's the tale that I found where she actually speaks. And that's so rare to get that, you know, like, why? I would love to know what her comb looked like, you know, like. I want to know too. They all keep finding this bloody comb. It's gold sometimes is the only reference I did find. Um, Apart from that, they just say comb, but I found someone describe it as a gold comb. Um, But yeah, this kind of, this tale of this kind of reoccurring that, you know, her her saying, oh, twas your luck, you didn't put your hand out. Otherwise, you know, otherwise I would have broken it or something. Or um, tales like the first one that I read that her thinking that, um, say, the stick that the man passes the comb down to her with or the spade or something, she breaks it thinking it's the hand. So I guess maybe as punishment for, for stealing her comb or something. Good enough for him. Shouldn't be picking up things, leaving where they are. People lost them. <laughs> Or yeah, the, she she runs away and they bloody steal her comb. Like, um, and this is an account I actually found from Mr. John Connery, who's age sixty, and this is the tale. He says it is said that the banshee takes the shape of a young girl with golden hair, dressed in a shimmering white garment. Um, and this is from a part in Clare. He says she's still heard in this part of Clare, and they say that it is the same banshee that comes to the O'Briens always since the days of Brian Beru. Interesting. Interesting how she's completely changed there. She's like, absolutely like that's nothing like the creature you'd know. Um, for anyone out there that is a McCarthy, <laughs> I don't know if you know, but he have a big banshee in your family. In fact, you have a really important banshee in your family. Um, yeah. You have a, a former goddess who is a banshee. Um, so the goddess Cleana, she was the goddess of love and beauty. She left Tirnanog to she fell in love with a mortal person called Kiavon. And as we all know, an immortal and a mortal kind of romance doesn't always work well together. It so cannot be. Kiavon went off hunting one day and she sat on the shore um, down in Cork waiting for him to come back and she fell asleep while waiting on the shoreline. The king of the Tuatadanan wanted to bring her home so he summoned a wave to take her out into the sea but when she was brought out in the wave she would drown. And in Glandor in Cork when the tide comes in the ninth wave is said to be the strongest wave and that is called Cleana's wave. Mm. Which I think is a really nice way of preserving her memory. Absolutely, yeah. How she ties into the McCarthy family is, so Cormac McCarthy used to own Blarney Castle. That's where he had his seat. And he was in a lawsuit and he was stressing out about it. And he asked the goddess Cleana, who was known for kind of protecting the lands of Munster, to help guide him in coming out at the best situation from this lawsuit. She came to him in a dream and said to kiss the first stone that he saw on his way to court. He did that the next day, found a stone. This became our famous Blarney stone. We, when he went into court, he was able to articulate himself so well that he won the court case. And thus this became the whole gift of the gab thing, always being able to talk yourself out of situations. But she became the banshee for that family and i mean i think it's pretty cool you've got a goddess as your banshee so all you mccarty's out there um <laughs> keep it keep an ear out keep an ear out for sure yeah my god i have a mad one i have another tale that's collected by a 14 year old boy 
um, just because it's, it's, it's mad. A 14-year-old boy, Thomas Ennis, collected it from 79-year-old Pat Cleary from Nace. So, and the tale is this. A young girl called Ettie da- Daly lived in little town Robertstown, County Kildare. And one day she heard a banshee crying near the house and she went out to see what it was. And she saw a woman peeping around the end of the house combing her hair. Just terrifying. <laughs> the girl was only eight years of age and she didn't know it was the banshee. So she had a stick in her hand to hit the woman. And because she thought she was coming to steal something, she ran after the woman and was shouting at her to go away. Very brave eight-year-old, if you ask me. Yeah. She followed her up to the tunnel at Nellie Connolly's gate um, at Grange Clare and the banshee went under the tunnel. The girl went around all sides of the bridge and couldn't see her anymore. She began to get afraid then, apparently only then, <laughs> and ran home and told her mam and her mother said it was the banshee. Etty Daly was burned to death soon after. Who's Etty? The child. The eight-year-old child. Oh my God. What? What is this tale? What I think... Oh, that's really creepy. That's horrendous. I don't like that. <laughs> oh. it, was, it was mad because it's so creepy. Like this this idea of a woman peeping around the house combing her hair. But then this eight-year-old is so fearless and tries to chase away this intruder, or so she thought. Yeah. And and was burnt to death soon what after. A horrific way to, to get your revenge on the child. Like. This child, yeah. What I think is really interesting about that story too is how physical the banshee is. She mm. like the child is ra- chasing the, the banshee for like obviously a period of time. She a obviously while, yeah. has, like a physical form. She has arms and legs and thick, you know, she's skin and bones. She's not wispy. She's yeah. obviously well, I have this horrible image in my head, Jenny, of like this woman in black, like half like leaping. I know? see what you mean. I do- oh that's horrendous. <laughs> Like this kind of spider creature yes, or something like woman leaping around. Oh, oh no, no, thank you. Well, oh. I shan't be sleeping tonight. <laughs> oh, we did record. We did decide to record late, didn't we? As uh, always. As always. But myself and Jenny both have two personal stories that we'd love to share with you about the Banshee. Um, <laughs> so it's our story time now. Our story time. Mine is very brief. But um But yours is like it's like the other week. Do you know what I mean? It was the other week. And the fact that right before we started recording was when I realized <laughs> that yeah. this could have been a bloody banshee experience. Potentially. I mean, like, I was to say it wasn't. Yeah. I was telling Sarah, and this is this. So, a few weeks ago, I heard a noise at three in the morning. And I remember telling Sarah this because, you know, we had, you know, we were doing this, ep- the, you know, this podcast, we're talking about creepy things that happen. So I remember telling Sarah this, that, you know, I'm usually up quite late anyway. And it, I think it was after three in the morning. So everyone's asleep and I hear this horrendous noise, um, like not in front of my house on the street, a bit further down in the street. I live on in a cul-de-sac um, and there's just a row of houses obviously leading down to the main street. So it was further down in my main street. But I could hear it out of my window. And it sounded like this. It was a horrendous like crying of a child. And as I explained to Sarah, like 
I've heard I've heard foxes I've heard animals or you know when you listen to something and you know it's an animal it might be creepy it might scare you but you know it's an animal you know it's natural sounding it's 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 it sounds natural this was very clear child screaming crying it was a child scream I got worried that you know when you first hear noises I always kind of peep out because I like I do I hope nobody's in trouble and you know where I live isn't really a bad kind of area generally really but there's nobody on the street or I look out and there's noises or you know when I hear a woman screaming at night I always look out to make sure that she's okay you know mm-hmm. um it wasn't a woman screaming it wasn't a dangerous scream it was a child crying screaming look out there's nothing there and it really it made me feel unwell it really freaked me out and I, I just know it wasn't a fox or anything like that um and it just it just it was it was you know, went on for a minute or so and then it just stopped and disappeared and I tried to distract myself and go to sleep. And then, as I was telling Sarah the story, um, you know, because I would have forgotten about that then. I just kind of thought nothing of it then. I forgot about it. And um, Sarah mentioned, said, well, has anybody that you know died? And I thought about it then. Not that it's close, but two weeks ago then, the lady... Who my my parents uh, own an allotment where we do all our gardening and growing of our vegetables and fruit and stuff. Last week I was working at the allotment with my mom, and when we arrived, the um, the owner of the land was there clearing out the allotment space um, because there's greenhouses on each one, and he was clearing out the greenhouse right opposite our one. Um, you know, and because it's, you know, an allotment and it's mostly elderly people or parents planting. So, you know, my mom knows everybody. You say hi to everybody. And it's a little Asian lady who owns a lot of chickens that owns that allotment. And her chickens were gone. And we're kind of wondering where they're gone. And the owner of the land comes out of the greenhouse and he's like, oh, how are you doing? We say hi. And my mom says, well, you know, what's going on? Where's the chickens? And he says, oh, she died um <laughs> she died and her husband doesn't want to keep the allotment and you know he told me to clear it out and that was very sad and i only kind of connected the dots there that that might have been but it was just it was it was the noise though that freaked me out doesn't sound human and doesn't sound like an animal and it was it was gross so that's possibly my encounter with something that's really disturbing it's just disturbing the fact that it's the coincidence of you hearing the sound because I remember you telling me it yeah um, because you were really trying to stress to me how horrible it made you feel and how horrific it sounded and um it's just a coincidence that somebody did die you know and somebody like you know was like you you knew you like ugh. I think yeah, not close, but you know, and maybe like you always say, it's like, you know, if you see a death omen, it could be someone in your family or someone you know or someone close to you. But this is the lady that owns the allotment right next to ours. Oh yeah, so I, it's, it's like I, physically close. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be someone in your family. I think it's. I think it can just be someone that, you know. I think like I yeah. don't know. So the story in my family is. It's not on the Mac side. It's on the Dunn side. And, okay, so I'll set the scene. So where this takes place is down rural road outside of Calvin Town. 
we're talking forests and bogland and tiny little cottages really what you would imagine like of the stereotypical Irish image yeah. and it feels like um like you're going back in time when you go there it's a re- it's a weird feeling but that's where um where my granddad would have um had lived and where I would have been gone as a child for a while and there was a story that there was a banshee that used to be heard in this area so there's two stories the first story is one night he came home and he came in and he asked my granny he asked her he said there's a screaming noise up in the in the forest why is that there I can hear it the whole way from walking home because it would have been like few miles walk out of Calvin Town to get there and she turned him casual it's a screaming noise you know as you do he said who's up in the woods crying and she went I've been hearing that all night and the next day it turned out one of the neighbors had died and then another night someone was found and passed out on the side of the road so they they got her and they brought her into one of the cottages and they they woke her up the whole neighbors came in you know it was a big thing like and this isn't that long ago this is only during maybe the 80s uh, maybe the 70s 80s and they woke her up and um they're like what happened to you you know are you all right how are you feeling and she said that a little woman had walked out from behind a, a well like a pump well that you would get water from and she came out she was dressed in white and she was combing her hair and she was crying and she passed out from the fear of it from seeing oh her and it turns out then someone in one of the cottages then died but I remember going to that pump as a child I remember myself and my brother we would have been really small like maybe seven eight and we walked up to the pump like it was just an, an old water pump you know and we like walked around it and concluded, yeah, there is no way you could hide behind that pump without being seen. Like, yeah. that's, this is weird. And uh, we ran because it was terrifying that we like had like, decided that. Absolutely. But I often wonder now today, do they still hear her? Do they still hear her cry? Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long ago. And I mean, it's not like she's. I just I don't know I, I was it was a really strange area it, it felt like you were going back in time Jenny I still have that horrible image of the spider banshee in there. <laughs> me too me too I don't need to unsee that I mean I need to unsee that and now with a kind of old withered lady coming out from behind a well like banshee behind mm-hmm. the well oh Jesus oh. Jesus so I'm sorry if you're listening to this at night when you are listening and you won't be able to sleep like us now I hope but class um that this is this is the nature of such podcasts but let's try let's try to come from a skeptical point of view right let's try to settle our nerves um we decided to we decided to have a look into some animal sounds that would be heard in the irish both urban and rural environments yeah. they're, they're both the same um and kind of pose the question to you do you think this is what people were hearing and then saying I heard a banshee. Now, keeping in mind that people would be very familiar with what the animals in their environment does sound like. They would grow up very close to nature, both in urban and rural environments. I have a barn owl screaming and then I have a fox screaming for you to listen to. And do you know, like you're like, oh, right. Yeah, let's look at this from a skeptical point of view. Is this just what they were hearing? But like, 
let me play for you the barn owl screaming. I I I don't think there's there's anything nice about this. I think it's pretty terrifying. That's that's pretty terrifying. And if I heard that in the middle of the bloody night, my brain would instantly go to that's a bloody banshee. And you know what else? Barn owls, they're huge. They're massive when their wings are spread out and they're glowing white. Imagine seeing that in the moonlight. You know, say there's a barn owl sitting... And maybe- their eyes would glow in light. Yes. I wonder, yeah. actually, maybe some banshee sightings could have been a barn owl. One of the... I found one case in the school's collection that was that, that apparently a barn owl got tangled in some kind of cloth or sheet and that's what somebody saw when they chased it because I don't know what will possess you to chase the bloody banshee. <laughs> People see <laughs> some godforsaken bloody reason. Like, the spider banshee is back in my head, Jen. <laughs> Well, this person was like, yeah, grand, there's a flying banshee. Let me go investigate that. People were very brave back Excuse then. Excuse me, sir? Yeah. What? So it was literally, apparently, a barn owl tangled in some kind of cloth with its eyes glowing in the dark, flying around, fla- flopping around. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Imagine how stupid you'd feel the next day when you came down and was like, ah, lads, it was a bit of an owl. But like I would have I would have had to throw out my pair of trousers if that's what I saw in the night, Sarah. I know me some bloody man went after this happily to investigate. <laughs> I would I would be deceased. Oh my oh, Lord, no. But anyway, I mean it's it's pretty scary though. It's it's an intense screech. It's a very yeah, like sharp Shrill. screech. It's horrible, yeah. Um and so the next recording we have is a fox screaming. So make of this what you will as well. I think it's 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 pretty it's something. So this is a fox. I mean like a fox is a dog and you you just never would think a fox would make that sound. No, it sounds kind of like, I don't know, it does sound sort of like a dog, and somewhere between a dog, a person, yeah, and, and a bird. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, you know, you can imagine that, you know, 50 years ago and more, you hear that in the middle of the night, and, you know, there's a, death is even more common and unexplained and feared and you hear things like that in the middle of the night you know of course your your imagination and your mind would want to put a a reason or an excuse or yeah like a reason for hearing such a thing Mm. Mm, i think as you said we always try rationalize something that seems irrational i'm glad we've kind of made it from like yeah We've done that sceptical thing. Though the spider... I'm trying to get rid of the spider banshee in my head. Like I will is... never. I don't think that's a thing that goes away, Sarah. I wish I... I'm so glad you can see it too. Because I wish I could like take a picture of what it looks like in my head. I don't even want to draw it. Like It's horrific. No, don't. Because Maybe. I see clearly. As you said, it's like running along. Like <gasps> galloping. 
Yeah. And then I just thought of like kind of spider jumps. Like, well, I mean, yeah. So there's things like that, like throughout history, where maybe that is what people are hearing, and we just assumed it was the banshee or it was something else, you know. Make of it what you will, as Jenny says. Um, it could be. It could be just an animal sound or it could be something greater. The fact is the Banshee happened. There's there's records of her in every county in Ireland. And what I, I suppose what I really enjoy about her is that I think most people have a Banshee story in their family. And I think she, even to this day, she's still heard, you know, and I think I think people do kind of maybe have maybe a fear of her, of hearing hearing her and what that would mean. Because again, this death omen, whether, whether you believe it or not, I think people don't like the idea of encountering bad luck. Of course. I mean, we still think of the superstitions that we still um, hold basically like like fact or like truth, you know? People still... Uh, don't walk under ladders. They say don't open your umbrellas, uh, which comes from the Victorians, and we still do it. Um, you know the whole knocking on wood three times, um, the breaking of mirrors, the biggest travesty. You know, that's all still so believed. Yeah, and it's but like even in the most simplest ways, some people might say, "Oh, I don't believe in bad luck," blah blah blah, but they have certain ritual things that maybe guarantees them good luck so say for instance some people before they go on a plane will always have a pint in the airport because they're like I'll have a pint in the airport and that's the start of my good holiday and maybe if they didn't have that pint they might feel a little bit off and uncomfortable getting on the plane being like oh I should have had that you know it kind of it puts a weird chain of events in motion because you don't you don't feel you've started it right that's the same thing I think of stopping bad luck or, you know, feeling that you have bad luck because you didn't have your pint. I think people do ritualistic things without even realizing it to guarantee them good things. Whether it's wearing your, like, you know, your favorite pair of clothes when you go to the gym. Because you're like, yeah, I'm going to have a good workout. Oh, no, absolutely. I think it's true. Like, we don't consider, you think, like, ritual things have to be um, grand gestures or something. But we all have things like that. There's, you know or we, we'd call them our quirks or something but yeah. we all have something you know you you have to make your bed this type of way you have to close the door this type of way you I don't know tie your hair this type of way because x y and z do you know what I mean everybody yeah. has these things um especially when it comes to just I think yeah like we I think everybody in some sense believes in good or bad luck or, or uh, jinxing something you know we're kind of we're going into more the general death omens now so our banshee is our main entity but there are a lot of other not superstitions there are a lot of kind of omen of omens basically and and their superstitions like the whole um you know seeing magpies or what is the magpie thing exactly i know everyone has one for sorrow two for joy it's one for sorrow two for mirth three for a funeral and four for birth so the magpie rhyme, I think everybody knows the nursery rhyme. It's apparently first recorded in 1780 uh, by John Brand. Um, and that's the lyric. One for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral and four for birth. And it was then expanded by Michael Aislaby Denham. I don't know, maybe I screwed that up. And he added one for sorrow, two for more mirth, three for a funeral, four for birth. 
five for heaven, six for hell, seven for the devil, his own self. <laughs> he added that on and it sort of expanded um, after that as well. And Victorians were just so fearful of them, I think, with that um, in the early, or like mid-1800s when this kind of rhyme came out. Um, Victorians are so fearful of magpies um, that they nearly hunted them to extinction from before then before Christianity Romans believed that magpies were highly intelligent and excellent um, and had excellent reasoning abilities and in ancient Greece they were sacred to Bacchus so the god of wine Um, even Native American tribes believed that wearing a magpie feather was a sign of fearlessness so before um, the Victorian times, it was actually this like very strong kind of creature. The church then comes along and insists that, which is mad, um, that the magpie was the only bird not to weep or comfort Jesus during his crucifixion. Oh, that the magpie then didn't go into a proper period of mourning for him. And um, a number of superstitions sort of grew from that um, in the Bible a 19th century vicar reported one of his servants explaining that the magpie was the only bird not to enter Noah's Ark, that it preferred to just sit outside and swear in the pouring rain. (laughs) And um, a rumor was started by the church then that, this is mad, the magpie carries a drop of the devil's blood on their tongues And if you cut the tongue out to release the blood, the magpie would then be able to speak in human speech. What was their issue with magpies? Who, what did it do to them? Right? And this is the the, like horrendous fear and superstition of things like the magpies comes from this because they carry a drop of the devil's blood in their tongues. Who says that? I bet you, because you know why magpies are known to like steal shiny things? I bet you like some fella got his lovely ring nicked and was just like, that's it, hate them forever. Magpies in medieval times, they would be scavengers um, in battlegrounds, hospitals, the gallows. So, you know, from medieval times, when Christianity starts taking root, like you have that idea, them kind of like, what are the birds that um, eat flesh? Crows. Oh, vultures. Vultures, that, that, that idea, that kind of, especially on like gallows and battlegrounds, you think of magpies like vulture creatures, you know, yeah. um, and during breeding season, apparently uh, magpies supplement their diet and of berries with eggs and chicks of other birds. Okay. So gamekeepers and country folk who kept, anim- who kept birds would obviously hate the magpie as well. And of course, then, yeah, they're known as this thieving bird. So they're already, add to the scavenging, add to eating other birds' eggs. They're this horrible little evil little creature. Do you salute a magpie? You do. That is how you, if you see a single magpie, you're supposed to salute it. You're supposed to say, good morning, general, or good morning, captain. This is a way to counteract the bad luck. Or you, um, you kind of tip your hat to it. You spit three times over your shoulder. You say, good morning, Mr. Magpie. How are Mrs. Magpie and all the other little magpies? Could you imagine all the Victorians going around? You know, just Hello, Mr. Magpie. How you doing? Yes. Because apparently this comes from um, the whole seeing one is a bad omen because magpies mate for life. 
So seeing a single magpie means kind of they they lost their mate or they're kind of, I don't know, faulty and they didn't find their mate. So maybe that's like why that is. They mate for life, they have the mate, so they shouldn't be seen um, almost yeah. by so themselves. It's a fear of like, maybe you'll never find a partner or maybe something bad will happen to your partner. Maybe. Interesting. Right. And that's why you say things like, good morning, Mr. Magpie. How is your lady wife today? To kind of, I guess... Uh, Again, can imagine I... or throw back that oh yes there is a lady magpie <laughs> yeah you know apparently i read one as well as to blink rapidly to fool yourself into thinking you've seen two magpies <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous things people did like it's it's mad um including this on this website as well then after that saying you should flap your arms like wings and call loudly to mimic the magpie's missing mate uh jesus did people actually do you know i want to know i wish like i can get the tipping your hat like that's subtle you know that it's like a respect thing it's like yeah do that discreetly even like you know how are you how are you general you know good morning you know like you can get away with that yeah you can get away with that but like it's like flapping your arms in the middle of o'connor street like yeah sure what else are you be doing i know yeah that's it um, imagine that the bloody the, the whole the, the church saying the church, that that's such it has obscure. the devil's blood like what 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 is that who hurt you <laughs> a magpie apparently yeah apparently wow it's mad isn't it what other did what other death omens did you find i found when you think of death omens as well a lot of talk about like doppelgangers yes that, did you see this which is mad no, did um, you hear about the, what it's called in, in Irish? No. All right, listen to this. Oh. And this it's called a fleek. A fleek. A fleek. Because I've heard about the doppelganger thing too. Right. But in I in the Irish doppelganger, and I, I we must look into this more, Jenny. But mm-hmm. it's called a fleek. I think it's a fleek. Jesus, I hope it's not a fleck. Hold on. Well that changes eyebrows on fleek a bit, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> no it doesn't Jenny your eyebrows are matching look at the eyebrows on fleek <laughs> they're, they're, they're each other's doppelgangers because they're identical oh, <laughs> this is what, what happens when just... you record an episode at 3 in the morning oh, what have we just done have we unlocked some secret code I think is the so. Illuminati going to come now oh, apparently where <laughs> That'll be our three knocks on the bloody door. Stop, stop. I have the Spider-Man she back. Stop. <laughs> I'd rather the Illuminati. <laughs> but um, this whole thing with doppelgangers, in case somebody doesn't know, a doppelganger is um, like a, a copy of you, um, a lookalike. Um, so this idea uh, about death omens, I mean, all sorts of kind of things. Like there's the Banshee that's very obvious, but... Um, there's nothing else quite like her that I could find. So in other cultures, it seems, yeah, like seeing a vision or a shadow version of yourself is an omen that you will die. So this kind of idea of running into your doppelganger, um, it's a sign that you will die if you see this image of yourself. And apparently it's a sign that you will die in England and um, Percy Shelley. Yep. So Thanks. apparently saw his own double who... You know, he was the famous poet, um, famous romantic poet, uh, husband of Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. He told her about seeing many visions, including seeing his own double. 
And this double apparently was also seen by um, a guest in the Shelley household. And shortly after seeing it, he died. He he had a, he drowned. But do you know what happened with his doppelganger? He saw his doppelganger on the shore pointing out to sea. Oh my goodness. And he drowned on that ship. Yes. <sighs> now, that scares wow. me so much. I see such a clear image. Like, imagine just this, like, ghostly version of yourself with this blank stare just, just pointing your yeah. finger. No. If you have a twin, it doesn't count. We should, we should point that out. <laughs> That's no, fine. Twin, twins are exempt. Twins are a thing. But a doppelganger when you're definitely not a twin is um, slightly concerning. Yeah. The idea is something is trying to... There's another spirit trying to take your form and two of ye can't exist in the same world at the same time. Oof. Oh, that's real sinister and dark. Oh, don't like it that. It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. In, um, in New Zealand, they have a similar idea as well. But... um. It's a very bad sign to see a figure of a still living friend, obviously, because then you'd, you'd, you'd say, but they're still alive, but that's not really them, uh, because that's a sign that they would die. Um, if their face isn't visible, it's meant they would, it means that they will die soon, and if their face is clearly visible, they're already dead. Oh dear. Oh God. So I guess that's kind of like seeing a ghost, though. Um, yeah. Which is mad. Um, but yeah, I just found um, in England and Germany, they have a lot of women in white cases. You know, you see a floating woman cases. I think she's usually associated with kind of um, suicide or um, infant death, things like that. Um, maybe she's a bit vengeful or something, not exactly a banshee type, but a, a sort of a, a ghost, I guess. If you see a flame in the floor in front of you, it's a sign that a sick person in your household may soon die. If you hear a watch ticking sound in the wall or in a piece of furniture, it's a sign that someone in the family will die. Yeah. If you see um, this this black spectral dog again, or um, in in Irish lore, it's a shuck, which uh, Mark talked about in the last episode as well. This kind of large dog, large black dog, the size of a calf, apparently, um, with glowing eyes, and they, they howl. And um, they're supposed to, the closer to you they get, the quieter they get. Oh, that doesn't help anyone. No, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? Mm. Um, but you have you have some kind of um, household believed kind of ones as well. Um, yeah. Um, and I said there's the ticking, but the the clocks. Yeah, it's well it's well known. I I, I always thought these things were well known. Um, clocks. Apparently Detect. only people like us know these things. Yeah, well, let's, let's get educated. Apparently clocks will stop around when somebody has died. And we definitely have encountered that a few times when maybe a relative, and not even someone in the house. I remember we had a relative who died in Dublin, and I think two different clocks had stopped in the house, and one of those clocks was a watch that had gotten a new battery. Mm. Uh, and they had stopped pretty much in and around the time of when they had died. Um, another thing is if a painting or a picture falls off the wall mm. and it doesn't have to be a picture of the person or it doesn't mean that the picture, the people in the picture are going to die, but it's apparently it's a thing. And again, that was something in my own house that we had a picture fall off the wall two weeks That's later, right. relative went into hospital mm. and 
that was it. That was kind of the end for them. And then to to bring in our three knocks. This yeah. is, this is something. This is one of this is a really big death omen. It's something that I only thought about with my mom quite recently that we actually did have in the family, and I never drew the connection before. But when I said it out loud and having the awareness of the the three knocks now, I was like, Jesus, that's what it was. That's what it was. So the three knocks are supposed to be that if somebody, it, it's a death omen that you hear three knocks unexplained. And it's supposed to tell you that someone is going to die. Um, and the one of the, the the weird thing is, of Halloween of October two thousand and seventeen, uh, my nana was in her room and she was in bed and she would have the radio on very loud because she just enjoyed listening to it at full blast. And mm-hmm. she heard on the window outside the uh, at the house, and her room is near the front door so if if someone was like couldn't get into the front door they'd knock on her window so she got up she heard the sound over the the radio and she got up and she checked the front door thinking someone's after been locked out what happened there was no one at the front door and she went around the house and checked on I think it was my sister who was still in the house and she went into her and she was like are you outside but it was very clear that she hadn't gotten up in the past while she was watching a film she was like no I haven't been and there was no one else in the house. And I remember when Nana told us about that, she was very shaken. nervous. She was very shaken, yeah. She did not like the fact that she had heard three knocks on the window. She was quite nervous at that. But we all brush it off, you know. Not even I, I, I never even thought of it at the time of being a death omen. In my family particularly, there is one of... We kind of... it's someone comes back to visit you before you die in my family. So, and I think that's quite nice. I take a lot of comfort in that. But it happened again with my Nana in January of 2018. And what's weird is after those three knocks, I started to pick up on something not being right. Even though the house was running as normal, nothing was nothing was out of place. Nana was fine. Everything was grand. Yeah. But I was picking up on something wrong. And I, I couldn't explain it to you, Jenny. I just knew something was wrong. And then in January 2018, she was in the sitting room. She had gotten up during the night and had fallen asleep in the sitting room. And I went in to see, oh, you're here. You know, what do you want for breakfast? And she told me that her husband had came and visited her during the night. And I said, oh, like, you dreamt about him. She was like, no, Sarah. He was in the room. He was with me. He was sitting, he was standing right beside me and I didn't want to open my eyes, but I could feel him there. I was like, were you asleep? And she was like, no, I was awake and I was just holding on to his feeling. And I think he was there to, to tell me, to, to tell me everything's going to be all right. Yeah. And at that moment, I felt such a sinking feeling because I knew what was coming then. And that, that to me was my death omen. I never caught the, got the three knocks, but the figure I knew was a sign. Yeah. And, and then in May, she did pass. But I took, funny enough, my the death omen that we had, I actually took comfort in it. I wasn't afraid of it. 
I I didn't like I didn't I never spoke about it until I think after she died because I didn't want to admit that it happened you know because if you admit it it's real it's happening all that kind of stuff but if I could when I did think about it it wasn't a bad thing you know if anything it kind of helped me get through it knowing It, it is something comforting as I said like to know your your grandfather comes back for your grandmother yeah to to usher her off to wherever you know like that's that's a really lovely yeah like the psycho pump yeah to to help her find her way so that it's less traumatic or whatever you know yeah it's nice and it's not just a spirit it's not any kind of creature or anything it's someone you know someone she loved you know it's it's there's something really beautiful and comforting about it so i get that and i think that's maybe perhaps a way we should start to look at death omens is I think it's natural to be fearful of them, but to accept that they're not there to to tell you something. someone is going to die because of them. Someone is already dying, and they're yeah. here to say, look, we're here, we're, we're going to mind them. Yeah, there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah, I think that's nice. Yeah. Um, on the subject of the three knocks, we had a listener story. So we had someone write into us, we were absolutely delighted. Thank you absolutely, so much yeah. um, for writing into us. And they wanted to share their story of the, having the three knocks in their family. This is the email I'm just going to read out. And it we just we want to share this reader's story and the fact that they actually want to share it. This reader says, My mum used to live in the flats in town when she was growing up. They lived on the top floor at the very end, furthest from the stairs. I have visited this flat and remember the track to get up all the stairs. One day there was a knock at the door on the letterbox. My nan went to answer. There was no one there. She went back to what she was doing and then the knock came again. She again opened the door and no one was there. She assumed it was children playing and decided to wait in the hallway in case they knocked again. They had a frosted glass door and she thought once she saw a shadow, she could open the door and catch the children in the act. So my mum was seven at the time and remember standing in the hallway with my nan waiting for the next knock. As they were standing there, the knock came. My mum says she clearly remembers there was no shadow. My nan quickly opened the door and ran out and down the hallway and down the first flight of stairs where she bumped into a neighbour, George, who was coming up. She asked if he had seen children running by and he said no. A week later, my mum's dad died suddenly. In the family, we always refer to this as the three knocks before death, but apparently they are referred to as forerunners. As I, as I said, I thought this was just family story. So in 2014, my uncle was in a hospice. This was my dad's brother, so a relation to my mum through marriage. My mum and dad were sitting in the conserva- uh, conservatory part of our house. My sister and I were watching TV in the front room as I remember it. My mum said a knock came while they were sitting in the conservatory. She described it as a strange knock that, quote, vibrated through the walls, end quote. She thought one of us, I have one sister, must have gone out and forgotten a key and was knocking loudly to be let in. She assumed one of us in the sitting room would open the door, but started to get up when another knock came. She turned to my dad and said in passing, but with some seriousness, what if it's the three knocks when the knock came again? I remember my mum and dad bursting into the sitting room asking my sister and I had we been knocking on the walls we said no we hadn't been and they asked had we heard knocking on the walls sometimes you hear neighbors moving around we said no it had been very quiet um it had been a very quiet night until they had come in in a fluster 
My parents looked so shaken, particularly my dad, as he says he's a skeptic and would scoff when my mum would tell these stories. Two days later, my uncle passed away. Wow. So that's the tale that we had sent in to us. And we have full permission to share it and we're keeping it anonymous as requested. So, um, but we, we wanted to tell you about it. Because it's such a, such a story. I mean, wow. Yeah, that somebody, it kind of, when you hear somebody else has it in their family, it makes it real. Why would two, why would my family and her family, we've never met, have the same thing? I know. But I mean, not just you as well, but it's, it's a, it's a know, bigger than us, yeah. It's a bigger than us, yeah. And it's just something really nice about having, obviously, personal tales from people listening sent yeah. in as well. It's not just us babbling on. Yeah, I think I think when when people can share the same experience, but at different locations, times, um, for different reasons, I think it cements it that it's this is a real thing that happens. I think so too. I mean, we we've talked about this. I think there's some. Not authenticity, but some legitimacy yeah. to it. It's a very good story, so thank you so much for sharing that with us and allowing us to read it out. I mean, we've kind of come to an end, I think, of everything that we were going to share with you before we allow you to listen to um, the rest of the interview with Barbara. Mm-hmm. We hope we have educated you and interested you in the folklore that we did share, and we hope maybe we've lessened your judgment or fear of the Banshee a little bit, even. Except Spider Banshee. Spider Banshee will always be the truth. No! What's that thing like? Um, you better you better uh, listen to this whole podcast, otherwise Spider Banshee will be in your bed tonight. Oh, oh no. I take- felt it. Sarah, why? <laughs> Sorry, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> now our listeners are gonna leave because we're um, fine. But no, we hope we hope Spider Banshee doesn't get you. Oh, I mean, I will never unsee that image and her coming out from behind a well. So so I'll take that to my grave. Appropriate. Appropriate, yeah. But yeah, um, thank you so, so much for listening to us. And I know this has been a long episode as well, but we just had so much to share with you. Yeah, and I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I had fun. I always have fun with you, Sarah. I have fun with you too, Jenny. And like, God, uh, I think... Yeah, as Jenny said, exactly. We've, we hope we've educa- educated you on it, lessened your fear around the idea of a death omen and what it would sound like or appear to you like. And um, and please enjoy the interview with Barbara. She's a wonderful woman. Again, thank you so much, Barbara, for taking your time out to chat with us. Hopefully her interview enlightens you a little bit more into a more academic uh, perspective of the Banshee than just us two having a, a waffle. A ghost waffle, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, thank you so much, Barbara. And thank you to the Irish Folklore Archives in UCD again for the work that they do and for preserving amazing history and folklore. We will leave you here with um, the rest of Barbara's interview. And thank you so much for listening. The Banshee is probably one of the most well-known creatures in folklore. Why is So her status is only second to the leprechaun in terms of uh, how well-known she is in folklore. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I, I suppose she's associated with the ultimate mystery of death um, for a start. And I suppose that, you know, we all, it's something that has a huge emotional impact on, on everybody. And it does represent, uh, I, I believe, 
in the existence of another world, a supernatural world, and maybe that's something that people find a little bit consoling around the time of death as well. But no, what you say is quite right. I mean, the Banshee and the Leprechaun are still very much going strong in popular culture. And I'm always interested myself because we get quite a lot of Americans and other international students studying folklore in UCD. And I would often ask them in one of the early classes if they'd you know, ever heard of the Banshee and so on. And every year, you know, a large proportion of the American students in particular would put their hands up and they'd say that they, uh, you know, that, that they did know what the Banshee was and that they had heard stories about it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, what the, the upshot of it is that the Banshee certainly seems to have made it into the 21st century. Yeah. It's still very much alive and thriving. Which is, which is great that she's trying to transcending time. Yes. Absolutely. You know, but I'm seeing it all kinds of other unexpected qualities attaching to her as well. I mean, for a start, traditions about the Banshee and stories about the Banshee are something which you find very, very much in urban contexts as well as in rural areas. So lots of towns and city villages throughout the country would have their own Banshee stories. And that would certainly be true of Dublin as well. Uh, I may have mentioned to you before that there was actually quite a strong Banshee tradition in the Sean McDermott Street area, which of course is just off O'Connell Street, mm. right bang in the middle of Dublin city centre. And I just discovered recently, only a couple of years ago, that there was also a tradition about the Banshee appearing in Trantarf, which is a suburb of Dublin, of course. Now, it's actually where I'm from myself originally. But again, you know, places like Trantarf are not the types of places that people immediately think of when mm. the word Banshee is mentioned. So it's this lovely, unpredictable quality that you have about the Banshee and traditions about it, which I really like as well. Yeah, yeah, existing in a an urban environment. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's very much so. Very much so. Um, I suppose it makes sense in many ways because the banshee is, uh, you know, obviously she's a figure very strongly associated with death. Death is something that we find in all parts of the country and in all walks of life. I suppose we shouldn't, mm. but no, you don't. She has very much proved to be, um, to be, you know, very much almost a universal feature. Of Irish tradition. And has she always been associated with death or were her origins different? Well, I think it was, uh, again, as I know I've mentioned to you before, the expert on Banshee is a woman called Patricia Leist, who is Professor of Irish Folklore at UCD for years, and she was a colleague of mine at UCD for many years. And Patricia Leist had carried out a really detailed and very, very comprehensive study of the Banshee published originally in the 1980s but it still stands as a good piece of work and it's really is the essential reference book for anybody who's interested in the subject but she in her book did trace the origins of the banshee right back to medieval irish literature and there were a lot of goddess type figures like uh, the morrigan and oh. evil and various other goddess figures like that who do seem to be very early versions of Banshee, shall we say, in that they were also associated with death and they were also believed to, um, to announce death and to uh, to be heard crying to, to warn people that somebody was going to die. So, yeah, certainly the Banshee, while it's something, belief in the Banshee is something that's still very much alive and active in the present day, it's also something that does appear to be very, very ancient in Irish culture and Irish tradition as well, going right back to about the 8th century, as I said, in the case of some of the texts. And what appears to have happened is that the Banshee kind of 
morphed or developed from ideas that were associated with these early goddess figures and then became the banshee that we know in modern popular tradition and that we still have today, obviously. Wow, so the image of her being the old woman um, is, is not uh, her true form. Well, no, not exactly. I mean, again, obviously, the kind of the figure that the banshee, uh, that the figure of the banshee in modern folk tradition is not the same, not identical to the figure of these goddesses that I was talking about in early Irish literature. And certainly, you know, the goddesses in early Irish literature appear to have been much kind of, um, you know, they, they were goddesses of the land, that sovereignty is what appears to have been their function. And there is no particular suggestion the case of most of them that they were kind of, you know, very um, uh, old figures in the way that the Banshee is said to be. But having said that, um, I, I suppose the idea of a goddess of sovereignty is something that could also be seen as very ancient, as something that has ancient roots. So maybe the idea of the Banshee appearing as an old woman is just a manifestation of her very deep roots and for a very long pedigree in Irish tradition. But it is interesting too because the figure, or these figures rather, because there were several of them, these kind of sovereignty goddess figures, mm. and they were often associated with particular uh, families, particular dynasties, and that would also seem to be echoed in modern day where we have the belief that the banshee is associated with particular families, and especially, as I'm sure you know, families whose names have Mac or O uh, in their name. And, uh, you know, this would appear to be probably an echo of this earlier tradition of the um, the, uh, the, the goddesses of the land being associated with particular families as well. But anyway, it's just the banshee is wonderful, because she's just example of what folklore is all about because folklore is really something very old and very new at the same time because it keeps you know adapting itself and changing to changing circumstances and so on and she and belief in the banshee illustrates that so well well i'd like to talk about that the the the, the surnames with the o or mac in front of it would it not be true that a lot of irish surnames had o in their name and it was lost over time does that still does she still yeah. scream for those families or how does that work oh absolutely no no she does and indeed it should be said as well that by this tradition about her following families that have all or mac and that's very common as i said but actually there are other families you know whose names even historic didn't have o or mac in them so you know it's not an absolute there are also uh, other families that, that she was believed to be associated with so what you're saying is, is absolutely right. I mean, a huge proportion of Irish surnames, as we know them today, would have had O or Mac in them in their original Irish form. And then very, very often, you know, down through the years, the O or the Mac might have got fallen off or got forgotten or got left off. Um, but no, no, I mean, certainly a very significant proportion of Irish names would have had that originally. So you're, you're very right. Right. And when, in terms of the Banshee, in terms of um, reports about her, is she always seen, or can she just be heard? Um, she is more often heard than seen. But having said that, in most of the country, there are also accounts which have been recorded by, you know, collectors of the Irish Folklore Commission, who did such amazing work throughout the 20th century, and indeed accounts that have been recorded into the 21st century as well. There are many accounts that haven't been seen, as well as um, people who heard her. 
and uh, they're often um, most of these accounts would describe her as we were saying minister a fairly old woman and very very often she's described as having long white hair and in quite a number of accounts too she's described as combing her hair mm. and this is something which you know is probably quite ancient too the idea of, of women kind of pulling up their hair at times of grief and so on um, but in any case, the story of the uh, of the banshee combing her hair that actually gave rise to a story which you find in many parts of the country still, and that's the idea of, of somebody who finds a comb on the ground and brings it home with them, but it turns out to be the banshee's comb, yeah. and the banshee comes to the house that night and knocks on the window or on the door to get her comb back, but the person who has the comb is uh, quite rightly a little bit wary and cautious as to how they should handle this. So they actually hand the comb out to the banshee with a tongs and uh, she grabs the comb, but in grabbing the comb, she also completely, you know, breaks the tongs or, or um, destroys it in some way. So, you know, the moral of the story is that this is what would have happened to the unfortunate person if they had put their hand out to give her her comb back. So again, there's a strong sense here, which you get in many other traditions relating to the other world in general and certainly to the other world of the fairies, there's a strong sense that, you know, you don't mess with the banshee. You treat her with caution and you treat her with respect and, um, you know, you treat her with, I suppose, a certain amount of fear as well because she does represent a supernatural force. But yet, in, in most of the country there are stories of the banshee haven't been seen. In Cork and Kerry, for some reason, I think nobody knows exactly what about her. It's much more common for her to be heard rather than seen. But, of course, it's the distinctive wail of the banshee that is the most characteristic feature. And this is something that, um, this is something that you know, has been described and written about quite a lot by, by all kinds of people. Uh, the, the wail, the crying of the banshee, in turn, is probably related to the old Irish tradition of people, of women specifically, crying at funerals, the Irish cleaner, mm-hmm. or keen, or lament. And there's probably a connection between the idea of the banshee being heard to cry before a death in the area, and the idea of these crying women, these keening women, at funerals and at wakes and so on as well. So that's kind of another another connection. Of course, this is a very old tradition too. But it's really interesting as well because you know I've had experience of this even and that the the, um, the rest of Ireland myself in recent people who would be really quite sceptical and, and would be very dubious about believing in anything like the Banshee. Very often these are the kinds of people who say I don't believe in any of that, but you know this happened to me mm. and I did hear it, and and it's very hard. I mean, I've certainly never ever. Um, I'd be very slow to dismiss anybody or what they said they had heard. But it's very interesting because sometimes it's people who are, you know, um, would not normally be given to beliefs about the supernatural, shall we say. And sometimes these are, are the people who have these very, very interesting and very convincing accounts of having actually heard the banshee themselves very often. And, uh, you know, it's a big question mark there. It's hard to explain. Yeah, your own experience is very hard to for anyone else to disprove because you experienced yeah. it. Yeah, I found that a lot with talking to people that they it's the same thing that you're saying there. It's I don't know about this, but I heard or that in my family there's this thing, and there's still that kind of give towards the maybe the the, the uh, allowing themselves to kind of suspend their reality for a moment and delve into what they don't normally believe. 
I'm just going to say you do have um, experience in your own background and in your own interest. Very interesting. Well, I was speaking out with a woman who was telling me that she was actually in, in the front room of the house, and I was slightly countryside as well, one night. She heard what she thought was a child crying outside, and it was quite late at night, but she thought it might have been her niece who had a couple of small children at the time and who would visit her very often. And she thought to herself, gosh, the very odd hour of the night for, you know, her to be visiting. But she was, she was, you know, so convinced she went back into kind of the back of the house where the kitchen was. And one of the other people who was in the kitchen, brother-in-law of hers, actually went out, in fact, to see if this niece was coming with her children because she was so sure that she had heard somebody crying. And, of course, there was no sign of anybody outside. But anyway, the upshot of that particular story is that the... Uh, the man living in the house next door died the following day. But again, it's, um, you know, this she would be very typical of the kind of person who certainly would never be given to any kind of fanciful imaginings. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing is difficult to explain. And that was a modern story, like that's uh, within the last... Well, it would be a, a kind of late, late 20th century, actually, when it happened. So, yeah, pretty, pretty recent. Is there, is there many modern accounts or are people as willing to document what modern accounts because I feel like you know you can tell people that, that someone heard a banshee you know in the 18th century or in the 1920s and it kind of fits the traditional aspect of oh yeah people believed in that stuff at the time but you know in today's society where you're less likely to believe and you know give rise to a paranormal or folklore explanation do you, is there any modern accounts of it well, I mean, yes, certainly there were some accounts of the Banshee, you know, recorded certainly in the, in the 21st century, in this century, and even from talking to students. I'm often very surprised at how many students will come back to me with, um, you know, accounts of the Banshee or, or stories they would have heard themselves. So, yeah, I mean, again, as we were saying, I think that, um, you know, she, she doesn't have kind of a, a, an incredible ability to survive and to persist even in areas and belong communities where you'd never expect to hear anything about And I think that maybe nowadays people are, you know, starting to become perhaps a little more open again mm. to ideas like the Banshee because, you know, there's, there's so much out there that we just don't understand and that we don't know everything about. And I think that, um, you know, maybe in the past people were more inclined to think of things like stories about the Banshee as being, you know, old-fashioned rubbish that, that, that you know, nobody would want to. Maybe there's kind of an increasing interest in material like that. Because, okay, I mean, I'm not suggesting that, that Banshee actually existed, obviously, but maybe stories and traditions of the Banshee are a way of explaining things to ourselves about how we feel about death and how we handle death and about the impact, as I mentioned earlier, that death obviously has on an emotional level on our lives. And maybe by examining stories like this, which are, you know, obviously the Banshee is a collective tradition, it's something that belongs to to a community, to a society. And maybe to folklore, of course, I would argue this, but, you know, I would say that maybe by studying things like belief in the Banshee, that we can learn more about ourselves and our own culture and our own behaviour and what makes us behave and react the way we do. So for that reason, I think that they have a very definite value in terms of cultural studies, I suppose, in the broad sense. But then, uh, you know, obviously I, I'm prejudiced because I do teach folks or anyway, so naturally I, I, I believe it has a, a, a value. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that they can help us to, 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 to learn about ourselves and we can um, interpret them in ways that are helpful 
true understanding of uh, of of um, of ourselves and our own reaction and our own emotions. I think you're right. I think you're very much right. So she's associated with 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 death and that uh, ritual and uh, that limina- liminality that surrounds death. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. is she yeah. associated with any particular location, for instance, like a fairy fort? Because uh, or is there? Can she appear anywhere? She, she can appear, you know, really anywhere, it would seem, Sarah. The only place that there is a certain recurring tradition about, uh, in terms of the type of place she needs, is that she is quite often associated with water, which is kind of interesting too, because this is actually reflective of um, the figure of the uh, the bow, uh, or the goddess figure. She was known as the Morrigan as well, and the Irish literature was also believed to be associated with water. And this brings us to the idea of the banshee sometimes appearing as, as a washerwoman, funnily enough, mm-hmm. that she's actually seen washing clothes or sometimes washing a shirt in a stream. But this is something that goes back now. I hope I have my facts right here, but I think it's evil in the, well, in the end of the period, I think they've gone back to the 8th century, who also, oh no, sorry, it's another 8th century text, and I'm thinking about here, that there were other supernatural women who were believed to be engaged in washing as well, but who also presaged death. They all foretold um, the, 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 uh, the, the death of, of a person in one of the early stories of early Irish literature. So this association of the banshee with water, now it's by no means... Um, it's by no means something you find in all accounts and all descriptions of the banshee, but it is a significant number of them, and um, and it does seem to have these very early roots going back to early literary sources as well. And it's, it's another of the kind of factors, I suppose, that Patricia Lice had looked at in her book, for example, and uh, which she used in order to make the argument that the banshee, as we know it today is probably uh, someone who has, as I mentioned earlier, very ancient roots in Irish history. Wow. That's funny because actually the connection then you're saying of the water applies to the story in my own family where she appears at a, a water pump. So at a, water, at a water pump? Yeah, the pump where you got the, oh. where you got the water. That's right, Sarah. Very good. I've actually forgotten that. Isn't yeah, that? so that same connection, that, that, uh, that makes sense. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, the idea, I think, is that from the early text that she was believed to be seen washing the bloodied clothes of um, men who were engaged in battle. So there would be association between this kind of Morrigan figure as the goddess of war. And I think the idea is that um, this figure, and she, she manifests another name for the Morrigan men with the bow, which of course is still a common name for the banshee in areas of South Leinster and indeed in Waterford as well. But the idea was that she was uh, you know, watching the clothes of the men who had been um, wounded in battle and that she was, she was washing the blood off the clothes. So I think, you know, it's kind of a, a suitably gruesome kind of an antecedent for this idea of the banshee being associated with water. But you see, it's another of the, um, the, uh, the, the kind of links or connections to the early digital resources that uh, Patricia Lyston and indeed some other people as well have, have worked on. So yeah, again, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, what you might think was a minor but heavy insignificance. Yeah. It is a historical importance, I suppose. 
off the top of your head, uh, just gonna throw throw it at you. Is she's she's a death omen essentially, and I think Irish folklore is is full of those uh, omens, whether they come in the form of an entity or whether they come in the form of uh, something reoccurring, like um, the three knocks. Is there um is there any other death omens that are associated or that are in Irish folklore that um are maybe not as well known as the banshee, but that still exist? Yeah, well, the appearance of certain birds around the house would certainly be one of them, Sarah. And really the only one I can think of apart from that is, as you just said, the very, very common belief that if you're sitting comfortably in your kitchen and your living room at night and you suddenly hear three knocks, I think it usually is, uh, somewhere outside, that, that that is not a good sign. But um, but in any case, uh, and that certainly, gosh, I'm just trying to think now, what other death omens would there be? They, they probably, the banshee. And the idea of certain birds appearing around the house or even in the house and the idea of the three knocks, I think it would be true to say that those three omens would probably be uh, the, the most common omens of death in Irish tradition. Um, I, I think that would, be, that would be a good summing up. Mm. And I think, I suppose, the final question I'd like to ask is, there's a there is a lot of fear that surrounds the banshee, but is there any other creature in folklore that perhaps is as terror instilling as the banshee? Again, it's kind of it's very hard to think of anybody who was, you know, so very closely associated with death. I mean, the, the, the other world of the fairies, as you know yourself from your own studies, Sarah, the fairies were certainly treated with caution and respect, like the banshee. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the fairies, you know, sometimes could be benign in their dealings with human beings, and uh, they, they certainly wouldn't have been figures of. Um, you know, figures that people feared or figures that she was. And it could be herself as like, you know, the cuckoo or the leprechaun or whatever. They very often had a kind of a mischievous element attaching to them as well. Mm. Whereas God knows it's kind of hard to see that there was anything very mischievous about the banshee. She was kind of fairly, fairly serious yeah. and, uh, and fairly heavy, heavy in, in, in the message she brought. So, um, gosh, no, I mean, it's, it's a very good question, but I really, I... Uh, I suppose, sorry, the headless coachman, I suppose, would be another figure who was, I think, at times regarded as an omen of death as well. This this would be this um, this man driving normally a horse-drawn coach, but he would he had no head on him, and I think he was not regarded as being a good sign either. <laughs> so I suppose he would have been regarded with a certain amount of dread and foreboding. But no, I mean, I think the banshee probably is the uh, the, the, the um, you know the, the dreaded, the feared figure par excellence in Irish folk tradition. I think you could probably say that. Also, mind you, sorry, just having said that as well, in the vast majority of accounts about her, apart from the fact that somebody, uh, very often in the family or in the neighbourhood, apart from the fact that somebody dies after she's heard or seen, uh, apart from that, and as long as you leave her home alone, you know, it's not said that she actually inflicts any harm on anybody either. So I suppose, in fairness to the yeah. uh, you know, we should say that about her as if she kind of comes after you, unless you are on the way out anyway, with, with all due respect. So, um, so you know, there, there is all of that too. But, um, but no, she's, yeah, no, she's a pretty, pretty uh, serious figure, I would say. There aren't very many funny stories about the Banshee. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. The Banshee is not confined to Ireland, and that actually works in two ways. For a start, there are accounts of the Banshee have heard uh, in the case of um, 
I'm, I'm, I think there are accounts, I'm not 100% sure of this, I think there are accounts of that have been heard in the state, but there are certainly accounts, and I may be wrong in saying that, so maybe I, I, I shouldn't be, be saying that as a definite statement, but there certainly are accounts of the band she hadn't been heard in Ireland for somebody who died when they were abroad. I think that's, that's the way it went, I think, well. um, firstly. And secondly, you also find a kind of a comparable washerwoman supernatural figure in the tradition of Gaelic Scotland. And of course, you know, the, the culture of Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic Scotland was really pretty much the same for hundreds of years. Mm. But you do find her, you do find her in Scottish tradition as well. But no, the way the overseas banshee works, I think, is that it's normally for somebody who is actually living abroad and that banshee is, is heard here. I'm not sure uh, the more I think about it, I'm not sure that she's ever actually been heard abroad. But maybe she was, maybe she was. Maybe research would on that. Yeah. More, um, more uh, people here in the Banshee if we, uh, if we, if we did a, a proper wide-scale survey. Mm. In this age of globalisation, maybe the Banshee has managed to globalise with <laughs> It would be interesting to find out if she's if she's supposed to cry for the, say, the O'Neill family. If the O'Neill family did move to the estates, does she follow them? Yeah, is she spiritual that way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I say, I'm just not sure now. Having said that, I actually can't remember if we have accounts that were haven't been heard outside of Ireland, apart from Scotland. Um, I'm not talking about the same culture there, the same years. But I'm not sure if she's been heard outside of Ireland. But it really would not surprise me at all if if, if there were cases of people having them she experiences um, in the case of Irish families who have gone abroad. So there you have it, international listeners. If any of you have perhaps heard of a banshee travelling abroad, do let us know. Does she? Has she ever travelled outside of Ireland? If you're an Irish person living abroad, do you have any stories of the banshee visiting you while abroad about any family members back in Ireland or anything like that? Because if so, we want to know. Please do email us in your stories and experiences if you so wish. Uh, Do follow us on Instagram and Twitter and join our Facebook group. And thank you for listening. That was... Barbara and Sarah chatting away. Thank you very much for your time and for being here. And this has been a pair of banshees.